Remain standing with me while we read the Word of God here together for just a moment while we let the choir and the orchestra get down. Ran across an interesting little story about Bobby who arrived from school with a black eye. Fighting again, said his father, I thought I told you when you got angry that you should count to a hundred before you did anything. I know, said Bobby, but the other boy's mother told him to count to 50. You know, we're going to talk about peace today. And in the world that we live in, peace is often something that is desired, but is elusive. No matter how hard we try in the effort to maintain peace after we think it's been established, because man's heart is deceitfully wicked, peace is never a possibility apart from biblical peace. And we're going to talk about that today as Jesus addresses in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes, the seventh Beatitude, he talks about peace this morning. And he talks about us being peacemakers. So let's stand in honor of God's word and read from the word, Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he went up on a mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's read verse 9 again. Look at it. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for the joy that is ours to be in this place today, to be able to stand in honor of you with hearts filled with gratitude, to bring honor and glory and praise to you. I pray that we not come this morning as just another exercise of being here because we're habitually here, but that we come with grateful hearts, hearts of thanksgiving, hearts that from the bottom of our hearts, with all of the emotion and the passion that we can muster up, that we would offer to you that which is, is worthy of someone like you. You are beautiful. You're glorious. You're magnificent. You're beyond words in our feeble effort to describe you. For even though we know you, we have not fully known you. But one of these days, we'll be able to stand in that great cloud of witnesses in the place called heaven where you've prepared for us, and we'll be able to see you as you are and worship you as we've never worshiped you before. But for now, the way we worship you has to be enough. And I pray that what we've brought to you, we've laid at your feet, was acceptable in your sight. That is what we desire, to bring to you that which is acceptable, and only that and nothing more. You're... You're not enamored by our performance. You're not wowed by our actions. But you look to us in the heart. And as you look into our hearts, I pray that you would see a heart filled with gratitude, thanksgiving, and praise. God, I pray that as we take this time to open your word, that you would speak to us today through your word that your spirit would prevail in this place and that he would work among us individually and corporately as a church to understand this incredible concept called peace as you're calling us today to be peacemakers. 
the message that you brought to us through your son Jesus, Father, was a message of peace. And the redemptive work on the cross not only brought us hope, but brought us reconciliation and peace with you. And I pray that because we've been recipients of peace, we might become not only messengers, but we might embrace the mission of peace today. So use us individually and use us corporately as your church to go forth in this time, to not just be a feeble exercise of studying your word, but I pray that it would create fruit in our lives by the work of your spirit to result in that fruit. So God, teach us today as we humbly submit ourselves to your word and to your spirit. For it's all for your glory and all for your honor that we ask this today in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. The time and the place in which Jesus arrives on the scene was a time in which there was little of any peace at all. There was little peace in Israel because, you see, peace was something that was elusive. They were, they were enjoying an occupation from a foreign invader called Rome, and as a result of that, there was little peace in the society of Israel at the time. There was political unrest. There was financial unrest. And there were many who wanted Rome to exit and to leave them alone so that Israel could once again rise to the level that it once enjoyed before the invasion and the occupation of Rome. So there was an incredible political unrest, much like today, isn't it? A political unrest. Not only was there a political unrest, but there was a religious unrest. In that when Jesus came on the scene, he not only brought a message of peace, but he brought conflict into the religious experience or the religious traditions and practices of his day. But it wasn't a conflict that didn't already exist prior to him coming because the, the people that were participating in this, in this religious practice had anything but religious peace. You see, they were, they were inundated with numerous laws and traditions and regulations that they were uh, being enforced to abide by, and they were so strenuous and so ridiculous that there was no way in the world that they can measure up to the qualifications or expectations of this law. And so in, internally, religiously, in the church, I believe most of the people were without peace. They were confused. They were distraught. They were unaware of their salvation, and salvation to them was very elusive. And we find that in John chapter 3, where even a religious leader comes to Jesus and asks how he might be saved. And so we see this political unrest and this religious unrest, but it's also a personal unrest. For the individual Jew, in the Jewish tradition and all of its laws, were individually a people who had no peace. I'm convinced that many of them, if not all of them, put their head on their pillow late at night and were not at peace with their own salvation. They were, they were looking for it, hoping for it, wanting it, desiring it, but it was to them individually elusive. It was not something that was attainable. And so when Christ comes on the scene and he begins this beautiful discourse called the Sermon on the Mount, the largest recording that we have in the Gospels of a single message from Christ. He begins with the Beatitudes, and it's not by accident that I believe he addresses the subject of not only peace, but he encourages his disciples to not only experience peace, but to be peacemakers. 
If you desire to follow me, you must first attain peace from the inside out. And once you attain peace from the inside out, then you can share peace, develop peace, and maintain peace. Peace like purity, as we studied last week, has to first reside within the heart of the individual. For if we on the inside do not have peace, it will impact and affect every single relationship that we have. When I don't have peace within, I'm not going to have peace with God. I'm not going to have peace with my wife. I'm not going to be at peace with my children. My children are not going to be at peace with me. And peace is going to be that elusive thing while desired by everyone is not going to be attainable, much less maintainable, because we won't be able to have it. It must start within the individual, within the heart, and it must be something that we must individually have in here before we can experience it out here. Whenever you see the absence of peace in any relationship, it's an indication that there's a lack of peace within. So peace like righteousness, I'm convinced that we're going to study together, must begin from the inside out. So let's begin our study this morning. There are going to be a lot of scriptures, so buckle up. We're going to go through this very quickly. I'm going to put it up a little bit. We're going to go through this. You know how fast I can talk. So if you're writing notes, just catch up. If you can't do that, Go to the website, you can watch it, and uh, slow me down a little bit, all right? So here we go. What is the definition of peace? What's the definition of peace? It's important that we define it. And as we look in our text, we see where Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. What is peace? And how do you become a peacemaker? Well, notice in the text, as you see that blessed are the peacemakers. Again, we're going to go back to that word that we've studied now for the seventh time. Blessed means to be approved by God. It means for God to smile upon us and to approve of our effort, to approve of our lives, to approve of our commitment to him. We are looking and seeking his approval. So when we desire peace from within and from without in every relationship, that peace must first of all be approved by God himself. Any peace that God doesn't approve of is not peace at all. And therefore, the only way for us to receive God's approval is for us to understand biblical peace, how biblical peace is attained, and how biblical peace is maintained. That is the only peace that is approved by God. Any other peace is not going to be peace at all that's going to meet the approval of the Father. And in that peace, he tells us that we are then, if you notice the text, that we are to be peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? It means someone who affirms, but it means someone who brings peace. A peacemaker is someone who brings peace. Now, in order to bring peace, you have to possess peace. And so this possessor of peace who is the disciple of Christ, because he or she possesses peace, they can bring peace in the relationships around them and in the world that they live. So he's calling us to bring peace, not only into our own lives, but into the lives of those whom we associate with, not only in our families, but also in our churches. I I read an interesting little story when I was doing my research this week about a a father who was downstairs, and uh, he was in the basement. He heard some children. He's heard his children playing upstairs, and they were getting rather loud, and uh, they were being rather ugly. And uh, he was surprised by that, and so he ran from the basement upstairs and went into the children's room where they were playing. And he said, "What are you guys doing, speaking that way to each other?" He said, "They said to him, Dad, don't worry about it. We're only playing church this morning." 
It's interesting to me that, that sometimes the church is where there is anything but peace. And if you've ever been a part of a fellowship where there's the absence of peace, you know what I'm talking about. And the sad reality is that inside the church, where there sometimes is an absence of peace, our children then learn the absence of peace in the body of Christ and eventually duplicate or replicate that not only in their individual lives, but also in the life of their participation in the church. When a mom and dad have little, if any, peace at all between themselves, it's going to affect the children. When there's conflict between parents, it affects the children. When there's conflict between the children, it affects the parents. And as believers, as disciples of Christ, he's saying that we are to be those not only who have a message of peace, but we are to be on the mission of peace. And the reason why we who are his disciples have a message and a mission of peace, we ourselves are to ensure that we establish and maintain peace, biblical peace, whether it's between husband and wife Parents and children, children among children, and those of us who are in the body of Christ who are in the church. We are to be peacemakers. He's calling us to be peacemakers. And the reason he's doing that is because God is the author of peace. God is the author of peace. If you go to Galatians chapter uh, Matthew, uh, Galatians 5.22, notice, I'm sorry, it says, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things, there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit is what? And the subject of peace. What is a manifestation of the presence of God in the life of the disciple? It is what? What is one of the fruit? What, what is the fruit of the Spirit? It is peace. So when you and I are walking after having been filled with the Spirit, we are walking, being led by the Spirit, in the power of the Spirit, not in the power of the flesh. What's going to be the outcome of not only internal peace, but outflow peace? What's going to be the, the what's going to happen? You're going to be a, not only a representative, but you're going to be a recipient, if not a messenger, who's going to enjoy peace. I know there are going to be times in your life when you're, going to, you're not going to always manifest the fruit of the Spirit. Isn't that right? Come on, isn't that right? There are sometimes men we're not loving. Right, ladies? Come on, ladies. <laughs> there are sometimes that we're not gentle. And while there may be occasions in which we're not manifesting all, by the way, this fruit of the Spirit is singular. It is, it is one fruit, not multiple aspects of the fruit, but it's one complete fruit of the Spirit. You can't have one without the other, and you have them all. And there are times when one is going to be manifest and the other one is not. And there are going to be times when you're not going to feel very peaceful and you're not going to be able, you're not going to want to have peace. You're, want to, you're going to feel because of your selfishness to, to exhibit nothing but peace. But the child of God who is filled with the Spirit, who is being led of the Spirit, who's been empowered by the Spirit, is someone that's going to be a peacemaker. 
And so we see in the text that there's a contingency here on God. And the contingency is that we are dependent upon the spirit of Christ in the heart and the life of the disciple in order for peace not only to be developed, but for peace to be maintained. And if we're not dependent upon the spirit to help us overcome the flesh in the discipline of the spirit, to override sometimes those emotions that we have, we're not going to not only enjoy peace, but we're not going to be a conduit of the peace of the Holy Spirit in the heart and the life of the individual. So you are a conduit of God where he is supplying to you what you in the natural cannot do in order to become a peacemaker. It is difficult in the world that we live to be a peacemaker, isn't it? It goes against the grain because we're going against the pull of the culture. And we need to realize that the only way that we can be peacemakers is to be dependent on the Spirit of Christ to make that a reality, not in our own lives, but in our marriages, our families, in our church, and in our world. So, peace is contingent on God's Holy Spirit in the heart and the life of the disciple of Jesus. Secondly, it's not. Peace is not circumventing. You need to write this down because this is very important. Peace is not circumventing, or peace means it's not an avoidance. We don't circumvent in order to establish peace. Notice the text in Romans 12, 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Or the text that you have in Matthew 10, 34. Do not, says. Oh, it's up here. It's wrong down here, but it's right up here. That's a cool thing. No, 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 no. Go back to the other. That's fine. Thank you. Yeah, I'm looking down here, and it's different down here than it is up there because this is the corrected version, and this is not. <laughs> I'm confused. Are you? Okay. Well, I look down here to see what's behind here because I don't have eyes in the back of my head, if you've noticed. I've got a balding spot, but no eye. <clears throat> That's why I keep face this way. Anyway, if it is possible, if it is possible, Is there ever a time when it's impossible to establish and maintain peace? It takes two to have peace. The wife can do everything she could possibly have to to establish and maintain peace, but she's got to have a husband who's cooperative. A parent can do anything and everything they possibly can to maintain peace, but it takes the children to be cooperative. I just saw a man kiss his wife. That means he's in trouble already. No smooching in here while we're in the service, okay? No, I'm just kidding. If it is possible, it depends on you. There are times it's going to depend upon you. And I think sometimes what we, what we have in this idea of peace is that we try to avoid everything possible. You know, there are many exits here, and you can go through one exit and avoid somebody in here as long as possible. You don't go to the same life group. You're not in the sitting. In the, I mean, the auditorium is so large, and, and you can play those games. But when you avoid contact with someone else or try to bury deep that 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 division, that conflict, and you try to ignore those emotions, they only surface in time, and avoidance is not peace. It's not biblical peace. Thirdly, notice that it's not concession. In other words, it's not appeasement. In other words, peace is never established or maintained by you becoming a doormat. 
where people just step all over you and do whatever they want to to you, and you don't give up any protest or say anything about it whatsoever. That isn't peace according to the Bible. We see in Matthew 10, 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The word sword here means sword exactly what it means. What Jesus is saying here, I came to bring division between you and the world. It is not possible for us as believers to ever establish and maintain peace with a lost, unbelieving, degenerate world. We've been separated. And there are some of us that think that we can be peacemakers in a world that is, is, is not defining peace biblically and, and, and spiritually the way we do. And, and it's, it's, it's unattainable. But peace is not appeasement, meaning I just, I just let you have your way because I don't want conflict. Well, Jesus didn't operate that way. We're going to see it in a little bit. Wherever Jesus went, there was an incredible amount of conflict. And yet he was, as we're going to see in a minute, he was the word from God to Israel who was the messenger and preached a message and on a mission of peace. And yet he brought incredible conflict in his world, in his day, in his time. And it's not concession. Fourthly, it's not compromise. And there's some of us who would want to have peace for the sake of, of just having peace, and we're willing to compromise anything. Let me ask you, is truth on the table of compromise so you can have peace? Does God? I mean, is sin? Uh, let's say that, that you have a pet sin, and you want to you enjoy this pet sin, and, and, uh, and God is saying, no, 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 you got to deal with that. Oh, God, well, let's just have peace between you and me, and let me just enjoy my pet sin over here. He says, no, he doesn't do that, does he? He tells us that we've got to deal with that sin, and we're going to be convicted, and we're going to feel guilt and shame until we deal with the sin. God doesn't say, well, I'm just going to overlook that because you're a special case. I know most of us would like for him to do that. But in Matthew 21, verse 12, it said, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Jesus enters into the temple, and he starts to turn over tables. He's creating conflict. Why? Notice what he said to them. It is written, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus is bringing conflict in the church in order to correct the behavior and the actions of those that are in the church. There are times in which you will, you will have to stand for truth, and that stand for truth will bring conflict in those around you. Now, make sure that you're standing on truth, not personal preference or not methods or not some sort of like or dislike, but it's got to be biblical truth. It's got to be a doctrinal position that is grounded in the scriptures that's from the heart of God. And when we seek to establish and maintain peace by compromising what the word of God says, that is not biblical peace. So we've defined peace mostly by what it's not than rather what it is, haven't we? Because the world that we live in today would want us to compromise the truth and our doctrines and our positions on morality according to the Word of God so that we can have peace with others. 
And yet Jesus was anything but compromising in the truth in order to maintain and establish peace. Number two, I want us to look at now the deterrence of peace. Notice in the text we see that, number one, Satan is the challenger of peace. I want you to understand that there is a challenger of peace. In Romans 16, 20, it says, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's talking to the church here who is experiencing division in Romans chapter 16. And they are discussing and debating amongst themselves what is proper to eat and what is proper to drink. And in that discussion, there arose a division. And he's saying to those that 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 division, I believe, is a division that is brought about because of false teaching and false false understandings and false positions and divisions has crept up. And the author and the creator of that is none other than Satan himself. And the end result of that is I want you to be affirmed of the reality that one of these days in the future, you're going to see Satan crushed. But until then, Satan is going to be your adversary. And he's not going to be a proponent of truth. In 1 Peter 5, 8, we see be self-controlled, be alert. Why? But your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. Satan is never seen as a proponent of unity, nor a proponent of truth, much less a proponent of peace. He will promise peace, but he will never deliver peace. Notice number two, that sin is the combatant to peace. Not only is Satan at the helm of divisions and creating disunity and conflict and and hates the peace that God came to establish through Christ and in his church, but sin is also a combatant to peace. In Isaiah 48, 22, there is a peace, there is no peace, God says, says the Lord, for the wicked. There is no peace, says the Lord, for the wicked. God is saying through the penmanship of Isaiah in chapter 48 that hold on Israel because he's going to deliver them. He's going to redeem them from captivity in Babylon. But he's giving them a warning here at the end of this, of this exhortation in which he's promising them deliverance. He's saying to them, I want you to know that there is something called sin and that sin, if left undetected and undealt with, will create a division and a distance, in that it will hurt our relationship. For there is no peace when sin is present. Isn't it true that you've learned that in your own life, when you have that pet sin, or you have sin in your life, in your heart, and you know that it's there and you refuse to deal with it, that somehow your relationship with God is suddenly affected by that? When, he, when anger goes out of control and you react the way that you do in a sinful and, and, and improper way because of the wickedness in your heart, try praying. Try, and connect, try connecting with God. Sin has an impact, doesn't it? And sin is going to combat the peace that Christ came to establish in our relationship with God. John 3.18 said, And the harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. He's talking about wisdom in this text. He says, where there is wisdom, there's going to be righteousness, and, and, and the byproduct of that wisdom and that righteousness is going to be peace. When you and I wisely choose righteousness and we deal with the sin in our lives, there's going to be a product of peace. 
Notice in Psalms 51, 3 through 4, you remember the story of David when he sinned with Bathsheba. And he, he hid, he concealed his sin. He had her husband murdered in battle, basically, while he didn't do it. He put him in a situation where he would be killed. He then married this man's wife, and, and he thought he had concealed everything until what? The prophet of God came and said, let me tell you a story. And all of a sudden, as he gave the answer to the story, he was convicted by the Holy Spirit that he had sinned. And the whole time when he thought he had covered up the sin, was there peace? He says in Psalms 51, notice the text, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. No matter how much he tried to conceal it, that sin continued to create the conflict that he had with himself and with God and the sin that was in his heart. And he knew that until he dealt with the sin, he would not have and experience personal peace. Sin is a combatant of peace, and whenever we harbor sin in our lives, there's going to be the absence of peace. Number three, not only Satan's sin, but notice self is the contender of peace. A contender contender is someone who engages in a struggle. He is someone who is a competitor of peace. And self is that something that lies within us all that, that, that for whatever reason, as the flesh begins to, to rise up within us, engages in conflict and results in nothing but peace. In James 4, 1 and 2, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Here's, here's the church. The church of Jesus Christ is quarreling and they're fighting among themselves. Is it not this that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, you, so you murder, you covet, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. What's happening? Self is taking reign in the hearts and the lives of the people who belong to the church, and they're quarreling and they're fighting. Galatians 5, 23, we talked about the fruit of the Spirit being peace, but notice it talks about also another aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. And whenever self gets out of control and the Spirit of Christ is not empowering us to subdue the flesh so that he can rise up and operate through us, the end result is self begins to rule and when self begins to rule in your relationship with your spouse or your family or your 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 workplace or any place when self rises and begins to rule and reign the end result is nothing but conflict and strife and the absence of peace and that little self inside of you and you know him very well because more than likely you've dealt with him as as recently as just a few moments ago, is going to struggle, fight, and be the, the enemy of peace. And whenever you become so self-centered in your dealings, in your relationships between yourself, God, and others, there will be the absence of peace. And then lastly, notice society is also, I think, a competitor to peace. The world that we live in is a conflictual world, and it's a world in which there will always be conflict, and especially conflict between us and them. In Matthew 10, 34, do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring priests, but a sword. Notice, he said, but a sword. We've dealt with that passage before and the division that comes. James 4, 4 said that friendship with the world is hostility toward God. We cannot cohabitate with the world and treat the world as our friend. The world that is anti-God and anti-Christ 
anti our gospel and anti our mission is a hostile world and there is no way in the world that we will ever be accepted by the world that we live in today. And there are many of us individuals for some reason who don't get that. There are many churches who don't get that. And the, the, the idea that, that we need to present ourselves in an acceptable way so that it will accept us so that then they will hear our message just brings more conflict. Notice he says in John 15, 18 through 19, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would have loved you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world will, it will what? Love you? Like you? Accept you? Want to be like you? Bring you as a bud? Invite you over for dinner? It says the world will hate you. So why are we surprised when the world doesn't embrace us? Why are we surprised when the world doesn't like us? Why are we surprised when the world reacts the way that it does? We shouldn't. The world hated Jesus. The world's going to hate us who were followers of Christ. And yet many of us spend so much of our time trying to be liked by those of the world. Be accepted by those who don't know Christ. And we need to give it up because it's not going to become a reality. It doesn't absolve us of responsibility to at least try to live at peace. And we're going to look at that in a minute. And yet we see in this beatitude, he says that there are deterrents to peace. And those deterrents are Satan, sin, self, and our society. So we're always going to struggle with peace as long as we're on this planet. So let's take a look at, finally, the development of peace. How do we develop peace? I'm going to close with this. There are three aspects about the development of peace. How does it develop? How does it grow? And how, it is, it, how is it maintained? Number one, there's upward peace. And this upward peace is peace with God. As I said earlier, until you have inward, inward peace, you will never be able to enjoy and know and maintain peace. Romans 5, 1 says, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The word justified in this text is a huge word. It means that God is the author of peace. And because he is the author of peace, he then gave us peace. And that peace that is given to us, that justification has been given through the, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, where he now redeems us into a right relationship with God the Father through faith in that work on the cross. And as a result of that now, we have been reconciled with God, and we're no longer at enmity with God. There's no longer strife with God, but now we live at peace with God. How do you put your head on your pillow at night and know that if this were the last time that, that you woke up and you died in your sleep, that you would go to heaven when you die, that your sins were forgiven? that your relationship with God the Father is at peace because of Christ. Notice, since we have been justified, how? By faith we have peace with God. How do we have peace with God? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's been given to us through Christ. Ephesians 2, 13 through 18 says, But now in Christ Jesus... You who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. 
by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that we might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he became, he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. He's talking about Gentile and Jew. But he's talking about whether you're Gentile or Jew, there's now no discrimination, no distinction between the two. Now through faith in Christ, we all have peace with God. How do you establish a right relationship with God? How do you know that, that, that you're justified, that you've been made right? That We talked about it last Sunday, standing on the righteousness of Christ. He, 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 he places that in you. And, and I don't have time to redo all that because I just don't have time. <laughs> I'm sorry. But we now stand on a right position, right, in the presence of God. A righteous position because of what Christ has done for us. His righteousness becomes our righteousness. And now we stand before him accepted. And now we can enter boldly into the very throne room of God, knowing that as we enter into the throne by the blood of Jesus and our faith in him, we're accepted. You know, I'm convinced there are a lot of people that just don't have this kind of knowledge of their peace, and many believers don't. This peace with God that's been brought about not by your own effort, not by your own work, but by the work of Christ on the cross. Now, it is true, and we talked about last week, there should be some guilt and some shame, and there should be some conviction of sin, and we should feel convicted of sin and some shame and some guilt. But if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so we should never run from God. We should always run to him to know that in spite of our imperfections, he sees us standing on the position of Jesus, fully accepted. And I'm convinced if many of you saw yourself as accepted by God through faith in Christ, you would spend more time with him. Inner peace. A reconciled right relationship with God where I'm at peace with him and he's at peace with me. Not by my own effort, but by the effort of one who died for me named Jesus and reconciled me unto the Father. Number two, notice an inward peace. That's a peace in which we're talking about peace within, a secured peace, a peace within. You know, once I've struggled and I've, I've, I've settled this thing between me and God, there's an aspect of now, once I'm in Christ, I need to then walk without fear. I need to walk in the power of the peace that I have in Christ. And I, and I find that so often that is, that is missing from, from my life and from your life and from our lives together. Notice in John 14, 20, he said, He's a peace I live with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus in John 14 is about to leave the scene and disciples are worried they're filled with fear what's going to happen to us and thomas says you know show us the father and be enough for us and he said if you see me you've seen the father we've dealt with it but then he then tells them hey guys as i leave i'm going to leave you with a helper and that helper is going to provide within you a peace that's going to surpass all understanding my peace i leave with you you don't have to be afraid anymore 
And we see later on in John chapter 20, verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were in fear of the Jews. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Even in John 14, after he told them, don't be afraid, do not worry, don't let circumstances and situations take you to the point where you operate in fear and not by faith, be at peace with inside yourself, trust me. They were still afraid after he died. They were locked up on that first Sunday morning, possibly in that same place where they had the Lord's Supper together. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, Jesus appears, boom, and they thought it was a ghost. And, and looking and thinking it was a ghost because they had watched him die and they knew he was in the tomb. All of a sudden he's there, they think it was a ghost, and Jesus, the first words out of his mouth are what? Peace be with you. Don't be afraid. How much and how often do we operate in fear? Afraid of the economy. Afraid of the stock market. Afraid of this, afraid of that. What ifs and what ends? We operate in fear. And Jesus knows that. And he knew his disciples would continue to operate in fear. And what happens then in verse 20 in that same text, verse 20, chapter 20, and when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And let me not only say, peace be with you, let me show you my hands, let me show you my side. And then notice he says again in verse 21, peace be with you, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And he breathes on them the Holy Spirit. This is a special endowment of the Holy Spirit. This is not Pentecost, but it's a special dispensation of the Holy Spirit. We breathe on them, his disciples, the Holy Spirit. And he breathes the, the Holy Spirit on, onto these disciples because he knows it's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit in the next few days for them to be able to make it through these days to the end of when you will leave them and they will make it to Pentecost. He doesn't want us to be afraid. And yet we operate a lot of our lives in fear. Why? It's hard to be a peacemaker when you're operating in fear, isn't it? Notice not only is there upward and inward peace, but thirdly, there's outward peace. As we develop outward peace, notice in Romans 14, 19, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. This is a peace that he's describing for believers. There should be peace among the body. There should be peace among those who are part of the fellowship and the family of, of Christ. He said, so let, he's talking to the church, let us pursue, let us make every effort that we possibly can to live in peace and upbuild each other. There are two aspects about this pursuit, and that is the building up the body of Christ to encourage, to edify, to build up, to encourage, but it also to establish and maintain peace. We of all people who possess peace should be proponents of peace and should do everything we can to establish peace. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. We dealt with this a couple of months ago. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Notice he says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. What is our objective? 
to maintain and establish peace in the body of Christ among believers. We have a responsibility to live at peace with one another. Does that mean there's going to be the absence of conflict? By no means. In Acts chapter 15, we see conflict. Where conflict happens between the apostle Paul and Barnabas. You see, they had a young man named John Mark who had gone with them on one of their journeys, but he wasn't up to the task. He wimped out, and he went back to Mama. And now they were ready, getting ready to go on another missionary journey. And the Bible says in John 15 that there was a sharp disagreement between the Apostle Paul and Barnabas. It says a sharp disagreement. I call that conflict. Barnabas wanted to take John Mark and give him a second chance. And Paul said, no way, Jose. He's going to wimp out on me again. I'm not going to do that. And they had a, what I call a Baptist business meeting. <laughs> and they couldn't see eye to eye. If you read Acts 15, what happened? They agreed to disagree. And Barnabas went his way. And Paul went his way. And the whole body was at peace. And the body of Christ was built up. It's okay to disagree. And yet in our disagreement, we need to agree. For the purpose of peace, unity, and the upbuilding of the body of Christ. Outward peace. Fourthly, there's a forward peace that I want us to describe, which is really, I think, as we want to close, we want to make sure that we mention this. I think this is imperative for the church today as peacemakers. Because he said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God, right? So he's called us then to be messengers of peace, to be, to be on a, a mission of peace. We've been given a message of peace. And so there's an aspect about our peace as we establish peace between the individual and God. And as we begin then to have this inward peace where we don't worry about the outcome, we don't let circumstances and situations cause us to be all worried and fretful and doubt the sovereignty and the power and the provision and the presence of God. You know, we've been given a great commission. He's given us his power and his authority. We're operating in confidence, not in self-confidence, but in his confidence, now we're, we're, we're establishing and maintaining peace among ourselves, our spouses, our children, our families. We're doing everything we can to upbuild the body of Christ. Now we've been given a message with a mission of peace. And notice he says in the text, there's a reality I need to confirm in Matthew 5.10. As we go out to be messengers of peace and to share this message of peace, we need to be reminded of this reality. I want you to be reminded of this reality. Matthew 5.10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are you when others revive you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you again I say you'll never be liked you'll never fit in you'll never be accepted you'll always be persecuted because the world hates you and they hate your Jesus And while it may not always be outright persecution in this country, it is in other places in the world. There are more people right now dying for their faith and their claim that Jesus is who he claimed to be than any other time in the history of the church, even more so than in the early days of the church right now. There are more martyrs for Christ today than any other time in the history of the church, just not here in the States, because we have a comfortable Christianity. We have a cultural Christianity. 
And so we need to understand that the world that we live in, while maybe culturally Christian, but it's becoming less and less so, most of us who are my age and older are sort of waking up to this reality of what happened to the world that we knew. <laughs> There's so much hostility toward us in the church, and they make fun of our pastors and our Jesus and all of this. And look at and the younger generation said, we've known this for quite some time. There's a reality that even though we've been sent with a message of peace and we're on a mission of peace, that there's some who don't want peace. Why? There's Satan and there's sin. We have right now someone on a mission field right now up in, in the northwest part of Kansas representing us on a mission field. And while some are going to be receptive, there are going to be some who are going to just flat out reject Notice not only we have a reality in Matthew 5.10, but there's a responsibility that we must cultivate peace. Just because we live in a hostile world doesn't mean that, that I'm abdicated from my responsibility of trying to live at peace. Notice what it said again in Hebrews 12.14, strive for peace with everyone. I, I don't know about you, but that everyone pretty much is, is pretty conclusive. Strive to have peace with everyone. It's going to be impossible for you to live at peace with everyone. There's going to be times you're going to have conflict between you and your spouse. There's going to be times when you're going to have conflict between you and your children. There's going to be times you're going to have conflict within inside your own family, your extended family. It's going to happen. But even though we've been given a message and we're on a mission of peace, and we're going out into the world with this message and this mission of peace, they should embrace it, right? But they're not. As a matter of fact, it's going to, they're going to rise up and they're become more hostile in the days to come. And yet that still doesn't absolve us from a responsibility of trying to do everything we can to be people of peace. It says, strive for peace with everyone. Remember in 1218, it said, if it is possible. I think what he's saying to us is, don't be a jerk, believer. There's some of us that are just jerks. We wear our Christianity like a badge and we criticize and condemn and ridicule and belittle people, we should love them as God loved them. For God so loved the world, and he loved us before we even loved him. He knew us before we knew him, and he sent his son to die on a cross for us in spite of our sin and our shame. And while the world is hostile, yes, and we must embrace that reality, we must also love them as God and Christ love them. It's going to take the power of the Holy Spirit working in us to be able to love a hostile world like the one we live in today. So, well, I've never known criticism or persecution for my faith. That tells me a lot about your faith. But when you are persecuted, don't be a jerk. I mean, Jesus, when he was dying on a cross, what did he say? They executed him. And he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so should we as his disciples. But notice in Hebrews 12, 14, not only to have a responsibility, we need to cultivate but notice in Acts 10, 36, we have a redemption we must communicate. Acts 10, 36, as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ. 
Interesting in this important passage, it says the word that he sent to Israel. Who's the word? The word is Jesus in the flesh. He sent him to Israel to preach what kind of message? What kind of message? A message of peace. We have a message of peace to a world that doesn't have, doesn't know, can't possess peace, and yet they're doing everything they can to possess it and to maintain it. And the only way we'll ever have peace in this world is through the message of the gospel of peace. I found uh, in the archives of my illustrations this interesting story. I'm going to close with this. It's a story about a 17-year-old named Cassie Bernali. Bernal. She was in the library on Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado on April 20th, 1999, studying the Bible as she did every day at lunch when she heard shooting erupt in her school. As the gunman entered the room, Casey reportedly knelt and prayed with the angered attacker. attacker. She prayed with the angered attacker. Prayed for him. He approached her and asked her sarcastically if she believed in God. She paused and then said one word, yes. The gunman asked her why, but Casey had no time to answer before she was shot to death where she, where she was. Casey, who had been a Christian for two years, was known for carrying her Bible to school every day and wearing a What Would Jesus Do bracelet. Three days before the shooting, she, she had skipped her prom to help with a Denver area youth for Christ banquet. She is a martyr, the best of martyrs, her pastor told 2,000 students at her memorial service. Casey died a martyr's death. She went to a martyr's hall of fame. At that service, 27 young people gave their hearts and lives to Christ as their personal Savior and Lord. We think that persecution for our faith is something that is in another country, maybe historically in another time, but it's presently in the United States of America and in our world. And I'm convinced it's going to be harder and harder and harder for us to be messengers of peace on a mission of peace. And yet, if we are to follow the example of Jesus, that's who we are. So as we close, I want to ask you this question in short. Do you have upward peace? Have you reconciled that, 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 that sin between you and God? Because unless you deal with that sin between you and God, there will not be inner peace. And that what you're feeling right now in your heart is, 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 is a reality. It's, it's called the Holy Spirit who's moving and working in you, helping you realize and recognize that you need to settle the issue of sin because unless you settle that sin issue, you'll never have, you'll never have that reconciled right relationship with the Father. You'll never know peace. It, it may be something that you desire and you strive for, but it'll always be elusive. It'll just be beyond your reach. It'll never be attainable unless you first reconcile that that sin between you and God. Do you know the peace that we're talking about?
Have you come to the place and the point in your life that you know for certain that you settled your sin issue with God? Once you establish that, that right relationship with God, believer, we need to maintain that right relationship. And if there's sin in your heart right now between you and God, it's creating a, a problem for you in, in your relationship with him. And until you deal with it rightly, you'll not have inner peace and you'll not be able to be a messenger of peace. Do we have upward peace? Do you have inner peace? Some of us might say, you know, I don't have sin in my heart in my life right now. I'm not feeling that. But there's something in my life that's such a huge obstacle. It's such a huge barrier. It's such a large challenge. And I'm, I'm, there's a circumstance and a situation in my life. I just, I, I just can't get peace. Maybe it's time to just turn it over to God and to trust him and let him infuse in you through the power of his spirit a peace that surpasses all understanding. And you don't know how it's going to work out, but you know who you, who you put your faith in. And because you put your faith and your trust in him, there's no worries. Remember that old saying, don't worry, be happy? The word blessed also means happy. So when there's a void or an absence of worry, there's a happiness and a joy and a blessedness that comes. Let me ask you, are you now a messenger of peace among the body of Christ? Are you a proponent of, of, of peace? Are you being a messenger of peace among those who know Christ? And then lastly, are you a messenger of peace on a mission of peace with Jesus? What would God have you do today? in light of what we have seen in his word and his spirit has communicated to your heart. Let's pray.